Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. So often in products cases, you've got the chicken and the egg. You've got contrib, but you've got this defect, and you say, well, if it wouldn't have been defective, even with the contrib, he's not injured. This, this guy was doing everything right. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you this afternoon? You know, today when we recorded on Monday and I said I was having a Monday, I was having (laughs) such a Monday. And today, which is Wednesday, I'm also having such a Monday. But I'm we're about to turn it all around because I feel like it's been a minute since we've talked about a good old auto defect case um, a good a good fun auto products case that uh that uh, we our firm does a lot of these and and tim Traycheck uh uh does a lot of these as well and tim is based out of uh habish habish and rotier in uh milwaukee actually i, I looked him up i think you guys have 13 offices around the wisconsin maybe maybe a couple in illinois as well no, you got uh, 13 all in wisconsin all in wisconsin okay i couldn't tell um and you can look them up at, at uh habish.com uh, that's h-a-b-u-s-h.com tim how are you doing today I'm doing great. It's great to be with you guys. I appreciate you inviting me on and I'm, I'm excited to talk about the case with you. Yeah, no, we're, I think this is a, uh, I mean, obviously as many of the auto product cases that we talk about involve uh, just terrible, severe, life-changing injuries. But as far as cases go, uh, sounds like, you know, you had a lot of fun with this case, at least at trial. We did. I mean, obviously the result makes it fun. Right. Um, before that, it, it's stressful because, as you said, we have a catastrophically injured client and yeah. uh, his wife. And the, the timing of it all for them was very, very difficult because he had worked all his life as a, a commercial, basically a janitor. He, he cleaned office buildings. And that's, you know, it's interesting. That's how we got the case is he cleaned our Racine office building. Oh, my goodness. Um, and he and he had retired about seven months before this accident. So you you have a guy who's worked hard all his life, um, helped educate his kids, retires about seven months before the accident and thinks, okay, you work hard all your life. We're set up now. My wife and I, Sue and and Ed, okay, we're going to enjoy retirement now. Mm. Maybe, you know, they had thoughts of maybe going down to Panama, maybe retiring down there because the cost of living and you know how how we see these cases happen. Lives turn upside down in the in a fraction of a second. In in yeah, in literally seconds, and uh, and everything changes. And that oh man, I I I did not understand that he had just retired. I could I knew he was retirement age. And uh, let me let me give everybody sort of a. Um, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm kind of doing things backwards here, Yvonne. I'm just jumping all over the place. I know. We, we haven't even introduced our listeners to <laughs> I <know. laughs> him yet. And I really want to see if you um, if you got that pronunciation right or if you're going to have to give it an, another go. I, I think I got it right. T- Tim Trechek. That'll think, work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I say Trechek, but there's Trechik. even people in the family ah, okay. who say Trechek. So okay. Trechik. We'll, we'll count either one. We're going to give you full credit for that. <laughs> right, right, exactly. I just, I just had to torture you, Steve. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> my, my favorite thing about 
about the podcast is talking to our great guest. My second favorite thing is torturing you. It was watching watching me just screw something up. <laughs> so, well, well, Tim is uh, is the managing partner uh, and uh, the uh, corporate secretary for uh, Habish Hab Habish and Rotier, in um, and is the managing partner for the Milwaukee and the West Bend offices. Uh, and as I already said, you can look them up at habish.com. Uh, so Tim has received uh, just a ton of awards for really fantastic work uh, over the years, has had just some really, really great cases, uh, great verdicts. Um, but he has twice been named as by the Wisconsin Association of Ju uh, Justice as the Robert L. Habish Trial Lawyer of the Year, uh, named after uh, your uh, partner, your uh, former partner, maybe. Exactly. Um, Basically, the, Bob was the guy who started crashworthiness litigation in Wisconsin in the 60s. So he he is looked to as the godfather of products liability in Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you won that award not only in 2011, but also in 2020 for uh, the case that we're about to talk about. Uh, it was also named as the Tommy Malone Outstanding uh, Verdict of the Year uh, Award by the Litigation Council of America. So that's named after uh, somebody who was very close to us before he passed and uh, and has been on this show uh, twice uh, the great, episode, uh, including episode one. Yeah. The, our very one. first episode, we had Tommy yeah. and Adam Malone on talking about, um, and, and, you know, so it, it, any uh, award with Tommy's name on it is a, is a great award. Um, and so, um, Tim has also been named as a civil trial specialist by the National Board of Trial Advocacy, uh, was named as Wisconsin's leader in law by the Wisconsin Law Journal, uh, has been named to the super lawyer top 10 list uh, multiple years, in, I think in 2014, 2018, 2019, 2020, was named as lawyer of the year for Milwaukee for product liability in 2015, 2017, 2019, and 2021. Can't seem to hit an even year for some reason. Only yeah, Oh, geez. <laughs> and he is a uh, he is a professor of advanced trial practice at Marquette University Law School and uh, a member of ABOTA. And uh, those are just some of uh, Tim's uh, fantastic accomplishments. Uh, but it's really great to have you uh, have you on the show, Tim. Well, I appreciate I appreciate being here. Um, well, let's talk about this case and uh, and and uh Talk, I'll give the uh, facts, and then if I mess something up, just let me know. But uh, you represented Edward and Susan Vanderventer versus uh, Hyundai Motors Company, Hyundai Motors of America, uh, and Kayla Schwartz, who uh, was the at-fault driver, a 17-year-old driver, uh, who ran into the back of Edward uh, as he was driving a 2013 Hyundai Elantra. Uh, he was getting ready to make a left-hand turn into a driveway uh, and had slowed down to about five miles an hour or so uh, when uh, Ms. Schwartz just made an uh, made a mistake and ran into the back of him. Uh, the speed of the collision or the, the change in velocity, Delta V, which we've talked about a few times on this show, uh, was 18 miles per hour. Um, so really a relatively moderate impact, not very much at all. There was four people in Edward's car um, and uh, only Edward was, uh, was severely injured. Uh, the other three basically had uh, minor injuries. I think one had to spend one day in the hospital, um, but Edward's uh, seat back um, 
uh, failed. Basically, what what it sounded like to me, and see see if I get this uh, theory of defect correct, but basically he had a headrest that had uh, two hollow tubes that kind of ran down into the back of the seat back. And when he was hit from behind and loaded into that headrest, uh, basically those tubes were were um, uh, sort of cantilevered forward or pushed forward into his spinal cord uh, and caused a, uh, a thoracic spinal, severed his, his uh, spine at T6 and caused him to be a paraplegic. But it was those two hollow tubes that sort of run down into the body of the seat back that pushed forward and caused this um, and caused this injury to his spine. Do I have that right? I think I think you've got a, a better handle on the mechanism of injury than Hyundai did after four and a half years of litigation. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, and so so basically that's the the um the basic of the case. A, a couple of things that I think were interesting. Well, one one is that Mr. Uh, Vanderventer was a was a fairly big guy. He was six feet tall and about 275 pounds. And as Tim has already mentioned, was a was a, a janitor or had just retired from being a janitor. Um I thought it was interesting. And we'll, and we'll talk about this as we go, but both sides were pointing out the fact that he was the only one severely injured in the car as, as, uh, you know, many times we've pointed out in product liability cases, one thing that we look for in, in evaluating a potential products case is that if you've got a, an accident where everybody seems to be fine, except one person that can usually be a red flag. Uh, Hyundai was actually pointing it out because they had this theory that, um, that it wasn't their seat at all. Surprise, surprise. Um, but instead that he had this condition, um, called diffuse idiopathic skeletal, skeletal hyperostosis or dish, uh, which basically they call it a brittle spine or a fragile spine. And, and they say that that's why he had this injury, not because of anything that went wrong, uh, with the seat back or with this, with the, uh, the headrest. Well, the, uh, the jury heard the evidence. They, uh, assigned, um, 16% of the, uh, verdict to Ms. Schwartz for causing the collision, 84% of the verdict, uh, for the enhanced injury claim to Hyundai. And the total verdict, uh, well, for Edward was $30,394,263.34. And then for his wife, Susan, for the loss of consortium claim, was seven million seven hundred and seventy thousand for a total verdict of thirty eight million one hundred and sixty four thousand two hundred sixty three dollars and thirty four cents. I believe both the um, the overall verdict was a record for Wisconsin, and the loss of consortium verdict for Susan, the seven million seven hundred seventy thousand, was also uh, the highest verdict on record for loss of consortium. So. Um, uh, really just uh, fantastic work. Um, Tim, let me just start. Did I, uh, did I get the basic facts of the, of the case right? And is there anything you want to add to what I left out? I'm going to bring you in to do all openings, all opening statements. From now <laughs> yeah, on, Steve. That's you've, right. encaps you've encapsulated the <laughs> facts really well. Um, and like you said, so we, we get this call or Racine office gets the call because someone's been horribly injured in a rear end or accident. And, and he had cleaned our Racine office. So he knew my partners down in Racine and what makes you kind of step back and say something strange is going on here is it's an 18 Delta V accident, which is, you know, we said really a moderate accident 
And the three other passengers in the car have walkaway injuries, uh, soft tissue. One had kind of a bony abnormality in her arm and got checked out overnight. But you've got three people who are basically uninjured. You've got an 18 Delta V and you've got a guy who's paralyzed, who's driving, who had his belt on, who had his blinker on, who was driving under the speed limit. So you, you get those facts and you say some, something weird's going on here. And as you know, in, in you know, crashworthiness product liability um, cases, you don't know what's going on until you right. get the manufacturer involved and you, and you get to this teardown. And even after that, you've got, you know, two or three experts for us that go to the teardown and you got two or three experts from Hyundai that go to the teardown and everybody's seeing the same thing. But now you've got to decide what what the heck is our theory? What right. happened here as to why our guy is a paraplegic in an 18 Delta V accident? And of course, we say it was, as, as you talked about, Steve, the the two bars that take the headrest cushion and bring it down into the body of the seat back, they, they go into what we coined in trial, the hollow tube um, design, which all of us who buy cars and you get this fancy new car. And, and as an aside, you know, one of the things I talked about in closing and, and what's rather sad is this was the first new car that the Vandeventers had ever purchased. Oh, wow. Yeah. So their whole life, they had always purchased used cars. This this car they saved up for and was their first new car. And no one who buys a car knows what the hell the underpinnings of the seat look like, what, what right. the metal underneath the fabric and the foam looks like. Um, but ultimately, in the teardown, we saw what it looked like. And it it looked to us like a weak, cheap design. And the top of the seat back was formed by one hollow tube that went down about 14 inches from the top of the seat back. And then the head restraint tubes went into that tube. And what we did in our discovery is we found a predecessor seat and we tore it down. And we found the subsequent version of the same seat and we tore it down. And both of those seats were much more robust. Um, and ultimately, uh, our seat expert, uh, Dr. Ken Stachelski, who's been doing it for decades yeah. and decades, came to the conclusion that had this accident happened in the predecessor Hyundai, he wouldn't have been paralyzed. And had it happened in the successor design of the same seat, he wouldn't have been paralyzed. And through discovery, we determined that while they were designing this vintage of the Hyundai seat, they had millions of dollars stripped from their budget. And what we determined is that the change they made in the seat saved Hyundai about $7 a seat. Right. Why they went from a more robust design to what I coined the cheap hollow tube design. You know, it's interesting, and we see this all the time in products cases, the, when they, when you first asked them why they changed the seat design, they first told you, I think, that uh, that there were some sort of noise complaints about the headrest uh, until you finally found, uh, you know, one of their uh, engineering change uh, orders uh, that basically showed the reason why they were doing this was not because of any noise complaints, but because of cost. Yeah, it, it, it's, dis it's disgusting sometimes when you find the truth, and you know, anybody who does the type of work that we do and everybody knows about the Pinto documents and and the, the Ford documents with the rear fires, there's usually a paper trail that tells exactly, you know, why what happened happened. Um, but getting to those documents yeah. and getting to the right people is, is always just a huge fight, and a huge battle.
And it, it took years, years for us to get to the bottom of why this happened. Yeah, well, and I imagine, and I'm, I'm hoping you can speak to this a little bit, because I, I don't think we've had too many cases that we've talked about um, on the podcast about this, but I have some personal experience with it. But it's, it's, I mean, products cases are always a slog trying to get the good stuff in discovery. But then on top of that, it sounds like in this case, a lot of auto defect cases, um, you've got documents that are in another language and witnesses who speak another language. Um, and it sounds like at least some of that factored into your case. So can you speak to just the logistics of that and how that further complicates things and how you handled it in this case? It, uh, it was maddening. I said it was, a, it was like another level of Dante's hell because we right. would take these, <laughs> the engineers from Hyundai, we, we took them by Zoom. And I, and I would have done that. This was even before, this was pre-pandemic. But I wasn't, I mean, I would have been flying over to Korea nine times. I think mm. we took 10 Korean depths. So we would start them at four o'clock our time. And some of them would go until 5 a.m. the next morning mm. because everything takes three times as long because you ask the question, it has to be translated. Then you get the answer. It has to be translated. Um, and of course, 80% of the answers are non-responsive. It's, it's right. almost like, Okay, I mean, the first guy, the first 30B6 dep we took, it was almost like on the wall in front of him was stamped this answer. There are so many accidents with so many speeds and so many different sized people that we can't possibly think about every accident with every speed, with every person who'd be sitting in a seat. There are so many options in so many ways. We do the best we can, and that's what we do. It was a three minute answer that he probably gave 80 times, mm -hmm. no matter what I asked. Yeah. You know, right. What's your name? What's your name, sir? There are so many accidents <laughs> and so many different sized people. Yeah. Well, you know, the and funny so, thing, I, you know, you know, when you're, you know, when you're speaking to an English speaking engineer, you know, when you're getting the runaround within the first five yeah. or six seconds. But when you've got the translation, you wait six minutes before you find out he didn't answer what I just asked him. Right. And you don't know if the, the translation, I mean, I, uh, you know, how the translate, it's so hard because you also don't know things, if things are translating well, depending on the language that it's being translated into, there are just not words for certain things, or there's, there's a different way of describing things. It's so frustrating. Um, and like, I, I remember one one of the first depositions I had that was in another language, I had a translator that was there with me to help me communicate with my clients on the break. But there was another translator who was, had been hired by defense counsel to do the deposition. And the, the translator I had was elbowing me in the side being like, that's, you know, that's not what your client said. I mean, there's that whole element. I mean, you're right. It is a circle of hell. <laughs> and, and we we had that, Yvonne. Our first night of depths, we had a checker with us that we hired from Chicago. And after about 11 hours, I think twice, he said, well, he said the, and I think really it should have been ah. Uh, and I'm yeah. like, I don't <laughs> think we should pay this guy $400 right, yeah. to tell yeah. us that that <laughs> should have been ah. Uh. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing you find in a lot of these, because I've done a few of these where uh, we'll, we'll, I won't name the manufacturer, but I'll say it was a Japanese manufacturer. And the uh, re representative that I was deposing, you know, he, he had gone to Georgetown University for his undergrad and for his master's in engineering. He then was the li liaison to the NHTSA for, uh, you know, like six years. 
And so, you know, so I go through all this, you know, I'm like, so you were, you know, here at Georgetown for, you know, six years, you spoke English then, right? And he's like, yes, and, you know, and then, and you, and then when you were dealing with NHTSA, that was all in English, right? And, and I was like, but you can't understand my questions well enough uh, to just answer them. And he gave some answer of like, well, sometimes I have some trouble with, you know, uh, uh, you know, certain words or, you know, certain understandings, but I mean, he understood English, uh, better than probably uh, uh, many people do. There's no doubt about it. That happened a number of times in our Korean depths where the translator would say something and then the deponent would say something to the translator. Right. And yes. I'd ask the translator in English, did he just correct your translation? <laughs> and, and he'd say, yes. Yeah. Um, it was, that was one lesson I learned from this is, you know, with so many things leading up to trial, you're, you're juggling 18 million things at, at once. And the translator for trial, you know, we hadn't thought about it until like three or four days before. And the court said, well, it's going to take me like a week to get somebody in here for a week to translate. And I just said, listen, we'll use the guy that Hyundai used over in Korea for all of our depths because, you know, I talked to him at breaks and he seemed like a decent guy. And, you know, the one night we had the checker, there were no issues. That was a big mistake on my part because mm -hmm. this guy came to trial and just how he translated and his body language and his discussion with the jury was so much different when he was when he's being used by Hyundai versus when he was translating our questions to their witnesses. And I, I told my paralegal Ken after I said that lesson learned, mm -hmm. don't don't ever let them bring their translator because he was he was just so much more animated and intimate and conversational with the jury when he was translating for them than he was for us. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis <laughs> you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. 
Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. So do you think, you know, if you could do it over, that you would have been better off having a translator, even if it was somebody who wasn't, who wasn't at that point when the trial starts, familiar with what it what is going to be a lot of um, sort of technical language that's going back and forth? I would have preferred that. I mean, yeah. the, the problem is our it has to be a court-certified translator. Right. You know, we couldn't just find someone to say, hey, you know, my partner knows a, a nice Korean person and they've agreed to do it. So it was, I didn't want to lose my trial date again because I yeah. already lost it twice. So it was kind of like, you know, don't hold out for perfect. Let's just get good. Let's move forward. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and we should mention, I, I, I forgot to mention this. Uh, uh, Tim tried this case in February of 2020. Uh, so if you had lost your trial date, you may still be sitting without a trial. Yeah, exactly. Well, wow. what was so interesting is, you know, we, we kept some clippings during the trial. And one of the clippings from the local newspaper was, you know, second case of COVID found in the United oh States. God. You know, this is in, in the last week of January. And, and we had the witnesses coming over from Korea. The whole defense team was sick as hell during trial. They were all crouping and coughing. Uh, the main, the main uh, defense attorney from uh, California was not in court during the final, the, the jury instruction conference because he was so sick. He came that morning and said, Your Honor, I'm too sick. Can I be excused for today? I'll come back tomorrow for closing. It, and in retrospect, I think probably half of them had COVID during trial. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, it's not yeah. like it's not like you knew we knew back then. And obviously, you know, much later they were saying how much earlier it was around and being spread around. But yeah, oh my, that's crazy. Yeah, it was it was strange. I mean, I think, you know, two or three of them said, well, we think we got the flu. We're not feeling good. And they yeah. had fevers and coughing. And oh, yeah. my goodness. Wow. Um, well, so I wanted to ask you, um, I have worked in a seatback case before, and it seems like in products cases in general, you know, sometimes you're going to get the heck of a wreck defense, which I think we've talked about on the show before. And, you know, that it was just such a bad wreck that nothing would be designed to protect it. And obviously they don't really have that there with this kind of Delta V. And so I'm wondering how much they went to what they went to in our case, a different defendant, but um, that they basically made our client sound like he was an unreasonably giant person. <laughs> Um, and so I'm wondering how much they, you know, I think they had a whole bell curve, you know, for how big our guy was compared to the average guy. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested how much they did of that in your case. Well, you, you're exactly right. I mean, so with our Delta V, they didn't have hell of a wreck defense, which, you know, almost they always have. 
our guy was, I think, 270 or 275 pounds. Uh, and on top of that, he had dish. So they had both of those factors that you know, they said he was the 99th percentile. I mean, he was over the 95th percentile. He was 99th percentile. But dish was their, was their much better argument. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you know, Viano, what their main CPAC guy who everybody has seen in CPAC cases, I asked him right out in depth. I said, are you saying that he was too heavy for Hyundai to design a seat to protect him in this Delta V accident? And early on, they made the decision. We're going with dish. A dish is going to be our defense. So when I asked him at 270, is he too heavy? Because that, you know, that's one of those teeter totter questions. Do they, are they going to say to anybody who's on the jury who might be 270 or 275 or 265, Hey, you're too quote unquote fat to be protected in this, in this right. you know, reasonably low Delta V accident and all of their experts, uh, McNish, Viano and Camacho, uh, their neuroradiologists all said, no, this is a protectable accident. Uh, even for a 275 pound guy, a, a, a healthy person should right. be protected in, in this type of accident. Well, Got it. It. And just and, and uh, you know one thing that we haven't explained to our listeners, we maybe in past shows we have, but uh, you know, so when they do the uh, crash test dummy testing, there's different size dummies. There's a fifth percentile female, which I think is around 110 pounds. There's a 50th percentile female, 50th percentile male, which maybe gets around 170, and then there's a 95th percentile male, which gets up somewhere in the 200s, I forget. But one of the points that you made at trial, uh, which is that they never did any testing with a 95th percentile female. They only did testing with a 50th percentile male. And so would really never had any idea how their vehicle would do in a, you know, rear end crash, you know, with somebody similar or, or even close to the size of, uh, of, of uh, Mr. Vanderventer. Yeah. And, they, you know, so and that was nice because Viano, of course, who who claims to be and I, and I think probably legitimately is the godfather of the high retention seat. We went through with him all the testing he did in the mid 90s when he was designing the high retention seat. He did fifth percentile, 50th percentile, 95th percentile, 95th percentile on a phone book, 95th percentile on two phone books. So. The one thing that Viano likes to talk about is how smart he is. So I walked him through why he did it, how he did it. And, you know, he did, you know, A and B testing, which he talks about. He wanted to see in the same Delta V accident, how the 50th percentile would react compared to the 95th percentile. So we, we did try to make some hay with that, Steve. And, and Hyundai's response to that is, yeah, we only use 50 percentile dummy, but we did it at a higher Delta V. So really we're testing for beyond the, it, had we done it at a 30 mile an hour with a 50th percentile, our 35 miles per hour with the 50th was even with better testing. We even did more thorough testing with a 50th percentile. Right, okay. right. Um, Tim, one of the things I wanted to make sure to ask you about, especially for some of our um, newer lawyer listeners is when you're, when you're in a case like this, where you've got experts on the other side that are somewhat of the usual suspects, there's a lot of, um, previous testimony of them. You kind of go into it knowing somewhat what they're going to say. And a lot of them are very experienced testifying, experienced testifying to juries. Can you talk about just kind of either in your prep to cross them or depose them, 
um, or how you handle them at trial, how you approach these experts that there's, you know, sometimes you come, you come into a case where there's an expert that you just don't know a lot about. And with these experts, I feel like it's almost the reverse where there's a lot of info about them, but you got to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. It, as we talked about it, it can be the, it, it can be kind of a double-edged coin. Um, but I'd much rather have a lot of material because when I deposed Viano, I think I knew about Viano's testimony better than Viano knew his testimony. Right. Um, yeah. I think uh, conservatively in preparing for the depositions and trials, I probably read over 70 depths of uh, Viano, McNish, um, and their other guy, their standards guy from California. He's an exponent guy. I can't think uh, of Lang? Is it. Lang? Is it Bob Lang? Is that who it was? Lang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. and so I had a lot of fun. And I, you know, the, I teach at Marquette Law School and I always tell the students, okay, I have a seatback case. And you may be, you may have an expert who gave a deposition in a tire case or some, and you may think, well, that has nothing to do with a seatback. So I'm not going to read it. Uh-uh. I mean, I don't think there's one transcript that I have read that you don't get at least one golden nugget out of. Yeah. And they may even in preparation for their death, be looking at their other seatback cases, but not read their testimony on a tire case where they say something that either through analogy or it might be right on point, it's, it's out of a different mechanical defect, but it applies equally no matter what case. So yeah, I, I, I do, it's time consuming and it, and it takes a, a lot of work and a lot of time and you need to find the depths. But as you, as you mentioned with McNish and Viano, uh, Viano has testified, he told me in over 300 seatback cases. So it's not hard to find transcripts on, right. on Viano with CPAC. So yeah, it, it it is a lot of work, but I'll tell you, it, there is so much gold to be mined in prior transcripts. And, you know, Lang, I took him through, or not, um, was it Lang? Yeah, Lang. Lang was um, an engineer who Ford hired during the Pinto, you know, issues with their gas systems. And... I knew more about that than he did. He started saying, no, that's not true. And I said, well, I'm telling you, it is true. You said X, Y, or Z. And he said, I don't believe that. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'll make you a deal. When I ask you this question in trial and you say that you didn't say it, I'll show you the transcript. How does that sound? <laughs> this is during deposition. He said, no, that doesn't sound fair. I want to see it right now. And I said, well, unfortunately, you don't get to make the rules in deposition, but I, right. I will show you in trial. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, it, no, and then what you say about uh, reading all the depositions, I mean, it does take a lot of work, but it is so important. And, um, and you know, there is just so much stuff out there. And, and I'll uh, share one story. I've, I, we've had cases with all of these uh, same experts, but one story with Lang, um, which was, well, I mean, first of all, we, we had a park to reverse case and we talked about this trial on the show. Um, but we had a, a park to reverse case, uh, where, you know, um, you know, you think you put the vehicle in park, it's not in park. It's actually in between park and reverse and it shifts itself into reverse, starts rolling. Our client tried to stop it, and she got run over and was paralyzed. And, um, we went on to exponents website because they like to advertise all of their expertise and they had a page on 
parked reverse claims. And what they said is, is that the, that the person will, um, you know, say that they put their vehicle in park and then it'll shift into reverse. But really what happens is that they're, they're just being inattentive and they've, they've shifted it into reverse. And so I was able to pull up his, uh, I was able to pull up his website live at trial and say, you know, before you even got, you know, one single, you know, fact about this case, before you, you know, heard, you know, Jessica Mundy's name, you already made the decision that when somebody claims they're putting the, you know, the vehicle into park, you know, they're actually just leaving in reverse. You've already decided that and you even advertise on that. And um, that was problematic for him, uh, to say the least. So, but yeah, that's uh, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> how did it go? Did he keep his cool? He did not. It would, and the best, the best thing that he said in that trial, and this was one of those fun things, and I, I know we talked about it. it was the uh, we had evidence of some OSIs, about seven hundred and fifty claims that they that they uh, uh, people leaving their vehicles in park to reverse. And when I brought that up to him, he said they were irrelevant. And uh, and I said, so I said, so seven hundred and fifty one people who might be like Jessica Mundy sitting in wheelchairs, they're irrelevant. And uh, he, he he must have heard seven hundred and fifty one uh, other people in incidents uh, irrelevant uh, probably 20 times. during the trial. <laughs> That is so funny, yeah. Steve, because I've read that transcript. Right. Oh, you have. I've read that transcript. Yeah. <laughs> nice. we're, we're, I, and I didn't know it was you, but I yeah. remember somebody saying, so all these people, they're, they're irrelevant. That's what right. you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even the Ford lawyer had to get up and he, you know, in, on his redirect and he was like, now, when you said they were all irrelevant, I mean, you were being yeah, like right. some callous guy, right? You know, That's like unringing the bell. Yeah. Let's talk about how you said they were relevant. Tell me yeah. what you really meant. Right. Yeah. right. Exactly. Yikes. Um, well, well, on the flip, go, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just going to uh, bring, you know, we didn't really talk about a couple of things about this because you mentioned the first 30B6 that you deposed sort of had this, you know, canned answer that we, we can't, you know, foresee every type of accident that's going to happen. But in this case specifically, it was a, everybody I think had agreed that it was a sort of direct rear end impact. So six o'clock, uh, you know, if you're looking on the clock and um, and is 18 miles per hour. I mean, it's one of the most foreseeable collisions you might have is either a frontal, you know, direct frontal or direct uh, rear, uh, which they had. And then, and then one thing I forgot to point out in the facts is the way these tubes are designed. I think they they are pointed away from the sort of back of the of the occupant by about 16 degrees and they had deformed forward. Uh, sort of plus four. So a total of, you know, minus 16 plus four, a total of 20 degrees deformed forward. And then of course you got into the, you know, talking about uh, the elasticity and the dynamic, you know, movement of it, that they actually moved a lot more than that. And then they end up being uh, in that area. And, and I just thought, you know, the way that you handled sort of all of those engineering concepts and you went through a lot of them in your opening and your closing, but just really took the time to explain to the jury what all that means, which is so important in a product's case is keeping it simple. Um, so I know I asked you a couple of different things there, but, um, but you know, the, the, the sort of can't answer by their 30 B six that you can't foresee it. I mean, this was, this accident right here was one of the more foreseeable collisions because it wasn't high speed and it was directly from the rear. Yeah. And, and, and what you say, and this was, you know, I was afraid the jury may miss this is the difference between static deformation and what happens dynamically right. in the pulse of this accident, which, you know, we were talking about before 
we got on. The, the pulse of the accident is a blink of an eye. You know, it's it's a tenth of a second. And I was fearful. One of the things I was fearful of is that Hyundai attorneys were going to ask if the jury could sit in the accident seat um, with with the the foam and the fabric on. Because if you'd sit on that seat and you press into the seat back, you wouldn't feel the the post that we said ultimately broke his spine. Right. And and of course, part of the reason is because we know that that the permanent um, deformation that we talked about was 20 degrees. And, and that's one of the things I worked with my expert on is I said, Ken, I need you to come up with dynamically. You know, j- juries have a hard time fathoming that steel can bend and rebound. So what they saw plastically, that 20 degree that the change that was left from negative 16 to plus four, ultimately our expert, you know, through some analysis figured out it was actually more like a 38 degree dynamic change. So you've got those things that are now not only sticking out four degrees forward of, of 90, they're another 20 some degrees at the same time that this large man's torso is being forced right. into Viano's seat, which is a high retention catcher's mitt seat that is designed so that the body goes into the confines of the seat. I mean, it's designed to do that. Right. So at the same time, his large torso is sinking into that seat back. These things are turning towards his spine, which is why we said they created this fulcrum that his spine got bent around, you know, they're coming forward at the same time he's being forced back. And now his spine is snapped by that, the fulcrum of the teeter totter, essentially. Yeah. And, you know, what they argued, and again, you know, that they're they're smart attorneys that it was, it was a good defense is this guy had dish, you know, he had this brittle spine that, you know, they found articles that said some people slip and fall or fall off of a bar stool or just turn wrong and you can break your back. Mm. You can break your spine because you're so brittle. The spine, you know, one of their exhibits that they brought out an opening and through their, their expert was a 3D model of my client's spine. And what it looked like was a candle that had been lit for about 20 years with wax, you know, it looks like wax just dripping down. It looked like they poured concrete over an anatomical spine. Um, And that is what dish looks like because you get this excess bone growth that connects the vertebrae up to each other so that there there is no flexion and extension in the spine. Um, The the big difference, what what really helped the case is we had a neurosurgeon that did our guy's surgery. He's the head of um, MCW, which is the medical college here in Milwaukee. And he really is a world renowned neurosurgeon. And he explained that all of this is true, that, that dish does create a brittle spine and it can break very easily. But, but the appearance of this fracture, Van Deventer's was not a dish fracture. This was a fulcrum fracture. And that ultimately became the battle of this case. Is this a dish fracture or is it a fulcrum fracture? And since he was the guy that had my client opened up and did the surgery and applied the rods and, 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 you know, fixed it as well as he could fix it. He's the guy who answered that question and said, listen, I've seen more dish fractures than anybody in this case. I've done surgery on more paralyzed spines than anybody in this case. And here I'm going to tell you why this was 
a fulcrum fracture and not a dish fracture. And I think his testimony and his believability carried the day for the jury. Yeah, I, I, I saw that part where, where the neurosurgeon came in and he even went to look at the seat uh, after after he did the surgery and sort of uh, and was willing to come in and testify. And I, I, you know, usually you don't find doctors treating doctors, you know, who want to get that involved into trial. How did you go about uh, getting this particular doctor to be, I, I guess, that that helpful? Well, I mean, so we we do a lot of work with MCW. I mean, we're, we're the biggest firm in the state, the city, and, and they're the level one trauma center in the Eastern half of the state. Um, and, and he's just, he, he is such a nice man and, and just so uber intelligent that he enjoyed this. I mean, yeah. he enjoyed this puzzle to say, let me try to figure out why this happened because he's, he's coming into it after he performs the surgery. And then we we contact him many, many months later, and he's kind of replaying this in his mind. And he's saying, when I saw that fracture, I knew it was unique. It was a it was a very unique fracture that I saw. But but, you know, he's there to fix it. He's not there to determine how it happened. But then when we told him our theory and we showed him the seat and we showed him the prongs and, and in trial, he actually used the words. He said that was an aha moment. He said, now I saw what I saw surgically, and I'm thinking to myself, this is very strange. But I think even in his mind at that time, he had the intellectual curiosity to be thinking, I wonder why the hell this happened to this guy. Right. It, it doesn't quite make sense. And then when we showed him our theory and we showed him the prongs, he said, that tied it all together for me. That answered the second half of what I saw surgically that I didn't quite know how it could have happened. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. 
Tell them, tell them we sent you. I love the idea of um, basically it coming down to a decision, you know, did his spine break between be because of dish or did his spine break because of this, you know, fulcrum coming in because it's, it's basically polarizing the issue and it's one way or the other. If you decide that it's because of the fulcrum, like his surgeon said, then you got to find that Hyundai's, you know, seat is defective essentially. Um, I love that. I wanted to ask you, Tim, if you remember, because I, in our seat back case, there was dish involved too, or I think they, maybe they wanted to say it was ankylosing spondylitis and he yeah. had dish. Um, but my understanding of dish and maybe and part of this is just for our listeners, because I think dish comes up a lot in seat back cases. And so if you've worked on one, you're familiar with it, but is that it's pretty common, especially as people get older. It's not like this crazy, um, you know, pre-existing. It sounds very scary and very intense and looks very scary and intense, but it's actually pretty common, especially among, as people get older. You're absolutely right, right. Some of the learned treatises that we found and filed, and I, I don't remember the percentages offhand, but I want to say it was as high as 40% of, of people over 60 years old have DISH. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then it becomes a question of the severity, you know, right. is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? Unfortunately, our guy did have, our guy had a severe case. Gotcha. He, he had DISH from C1 down to L5. He, he was basically a, a solid block of bone in his spine. Gotcha. Uh, but you're right. I mean, that, that helps where, if, you know, if the idea is you need to design to protect the 95th percentile, that's going to include the group that are over 60, a very high percentage of which have DISH. Right, right. So, it, it you know, in preparing for trial, you're thinking of these issues where, you know, we all know about the eggshell plaintiff and you say, well, hold it, you know, can't, if he's got this condition and they're going to claim it's DISH, you know, we can say eggshell plaintiff and, and you don't get the benefit of that. But in an enhanced injury case, it's a little convoluted and turned inside out because they want to claim eggshell plaintiff on the on the bullet vehicle, the torque feeser who rear ended, and and they want to say, well, yeah, it was this dish, and 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 that's ultimately what they argued inferentially is it had nothing to do with the Hyundai, it had nothing to do with our seat, it was this guy in any car in any seat with his dish at this Delta V, he's going to end up paralyzed. Right. Uh, it's a tough argument to, to make, but that's the one they made. Yeah. Did you, um, did you focus group this case and, and in particular, these kind of issues about the break and how it occurred and, and what you anticipate the dish defense and all of that? I didn't. I mean, I, I just, I was so confident with my neurosurgeon. I thought he's, he's either going to sell this or he's not. And, and I was confident with his experience versus who they had, you know, McNish, um, he makes a good witness. He's a family doctor. I mean, that's really what he is. I mean, he's, he's a war hero. We we kept that out, but he he really is a family doc. And then they had a, a, a neurosurgeon, but he didn't have the experience in dish that my surgeon did. Yeah. Um, and, and they wanted it. That was one of their, their cross-examination questions of my neurosurgeon is, well, well, hold it. You, you know, you can't read x-rays like uh, uh, our neurosurgeon can. You're, you're, you're just a, um, you're just a surgeon. And he says, well, listen, I'll tell you what, when I'm doing surgery on somebody who's paralyzed at two in the morning, uh, I am not only a surgeon, but 
I go from a dark room looking at scans to a, a room that's got a bright light. We call that the surgical room. And right. at that time, I read scans and I make decisions on what I have to do to to treat people. Yeah, it, it was a it was a powerful answer. Yeah, not, not only that, but I mean, he's looking at the spine itself as he's operating on it. So, yeah, the fact that he's not looking at scans, I'm not sure how much that really helps. Yeah, did, right. Did I, you... I, I I just Steve, I feel like I have to quickly rant into the abyss because I doubt many treating physicians are listening to this podcast. <laughs> but it just I mean, reading that in your opening that that was so important i'm sure it was so important to the jury to have this treating physician who was who who had performed the sur- surgery who was cooperative and engaged in the case and it just I was so pumped to see that, but it makes me so sad thinking about all the other cases that we've all had where you have treating physicians who just do not want to testify or, or work for organizations that will, that are very difficult to work with and just how much that can hurt. Um, so, uh, there's no doubt it made such a, and I was so grateful to him. And as an aside, you know, and all these things that happen as you're getting ready for trial, his father passed away one week before trial set and his father lives in India. So he calls me up three days before trial and says, Tim, my dad passed away. I need to go home. Just put me in the second week of trial. I said, no. I said Doc, it doesn't work. That I can't do that. I, I really can't do that. Is there any way? So he flew to India and he flew back the day he had to be on the stand. Oh, wow. And, and it was interesting. And I decide, you know, let, let's see what happens. So I said, Dr. Karpat, thanks for, for being here to describe your opinions and, and explain to the jury. Um, and, and first, I want to say how sorry I am. I know you lost your dad last week. Um, can you tell me, you know, part of what brought you back here to testify in, in front of this jury and explain your opinions? He said, you know, I, I wasn't going to do it, number one, because my dad just died. And I had to fly to India. And in our culture, you need seven days or, or whatever it is. And he said, but I got home and I talked to my mom and what my dad did when he was alive is he investigated helicopter and aircraft accidents for the Indian government. Oh, wow. And what I learned from talking to him is how important it is for families to know what happened and why it happened. And when I was talking to my family about what my dad did all his life, I knew I had to come back. I needed to tell the jury why what happened to Mr. Vandeventer happened. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was just a great wow. way for him to start his testimony. Yeah, really. Um, speaking, of, I'm sure you have something you want to ask, Steve, because I talked over you earlier. But I, I want to make sure that we talk about the court reporter issue. Well, yeah, I was going to wait to bring oh, yeah. that up. Okay. But, <laughs> yeah, so, That'll be yeah. a teaser. <laughs> right. That'll be yeah, a yeah, teaser. Yeah. We'll wait. Exactly. I was going to wait till we sort of finish talking about it and then then uh, then find out what happened to the court reporter. Um, well, I, I wanted to ask you, I know you d- didn't focus group case. Did you get a chance to talk to the jury uh, afterwards and find out sort of what made a difference with them? No, you know, disappointingly, and um, I have to imagine that it was, and I don't know if they talked after, but we reached out. I mean, I had one of paralegals make numerous calls. Um, We sent letters. I myself made calls and sent letters and said, please, you know, I I just want to hear what you guys thought about the process. I want to hear what you thought was important, what you thought was done poorly or well by either side. I didn't hear from one juror. Oh, wow. I never did, which was disappointing. Although 
sometimes when you win a trial and you, you think you're going to hear all these, you know, platitudes about how great you did. And, yeah. and they say, you know, these <laughs> things like, well, you did this horribly. And I, I <laughs> yeah, right. this. this isn't what I want to hear, but you know, <laughs> we, we all learn from those things. So I, I was very interested the four person dissented on the negligence question. Okay. Which yeah. I found very interesting. And, and there was one other guy that, that uh, dissented on negligence. So to have the four person dissent on negligence, but obviously still provide damages that, that were, you know, fair, I found interesting. And so, I, I would have liked to have talked to her. So tell me about that, because that's something I haven't seen before on a on a uh, verdict form that uh, some of the jurors can dissent from certain questions. And it looked like there was two, well, three, no, two jurors who dissented on different parts of it. Um, talk about that. That's just basically saying they don't agree with what the jury found on those specific questions, but then they agreed on everything else. Right. And it, and it can be interesting because you, you can have a. Uh, a perverse verdict. If you've got three dissenters on one question, then you don't have 10 twelfths. So, you know, the fact that we had two, that that's the maximum we can have in order to have 10, 12, 10 twelfths of the jury agreeing on every aspect of the verdict. So yeah, in, in Wisconsin, we can have dissenters to any subpart of a verdict. So you can have dissenters on any aspect of the damages or on negligence or on defect. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and it's interesting because they, the, at least one juror dissented on all of the negligence questions for Hyundai, but then uh, did not dissent on that Hyundai's negligence was a cause of the injuries. So, it, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, it's always, you know, we always kind of wonder, well, is, is negligence going to be more easily understood by a jury or defect? And, um, you, you know, who knows? I, I yeah. always say if you try a case 10 times, you right. get 10 different verdicts from 10 different juries. One, one thing I wanted to ask you about looking at the verdict form was, uh, is there a failure to warn type claim or in Wisconsin or is that part of the negligence claim? It, it can be ferreted out if you want. The only reason we kept it in is at one point in trial, uh, I asked McNish, it was this question about weight. And I said, are, are you saying that my client was too heavy to be protected by this car? And he says, uh, no, I don't really think so. And it was one of these things where I think after he said it, he probably thought, oh, shit, why did I say that? <laughs> he said, no, I, I don't think he's too heavy, but maybe there should be a warning telling people that if you're <laughs> over a certain weight, you, you've got to be careful. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure Hyundai was uh, happy to hear that, that they yeah. need to warn. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, one thing I wanted to make sure, and we and we will come back to this uh, this court reporter issue, but I, I did want to just ask because it comes up a lot in products liability cases where you've got a negligent striking driver who, you know, it's easy for the defense to point the finger at. Um, talk about a little bit about how you handled that at trial, how you, you know, handled the fact that, you know, she was at fault. I think she admitted her uh, fault. She, did. Um, she was 17 years old, I think, taking her brother to a dentist appointment and says she just uh, wasn't paying attention. She might have been cleaning the windshield or something like that and just ran into the back of them. But talk about how you handle the the um, other driver. And I guess, was she still in the case when you tried it? Uh, she, she was in the case, although she was protected through the release that she was never going to pay any more money. There were reasons we kept her in the case, yeah. um, to stay in state court and things like that. But that, 
it in in the enhanced injury case law it it i think it's difficult for jurors to try to separate well hold it you know if there's a line of dominoes and you push that first one down how can't that be responsible for that 10th domino that falls because it starts everything yeah so you you've got to instruct as best you can that and we i said this from the beginning she caused the accident but she didn't cause the injury um and one of the things we put in to try to anchor that, and I'm, I'm not sure if the jury ever really grabbed onto it because I didn't argue it too much, is I put in the medical bills from the only other person who had any kind of injuries. And ultimately, they were about um, one one hundredth of the medical bills of Ed Vandeventer. And that's why in closing, I argued, listen, the enhancing um, defendant here, Hyundai, is responsible for everything that Ed Vandeventer suffered that he wouldn't have suffered had this not been a defective seat back. And listen, let's look at the other passenger as to how injured she was. She had 279, uh, or I think it was 27,000 medical bills, whereas Ed has 2.7 million. So I think, I think, ladies and gentlemen, it, it's reasonable to say that 99% of Mr. Vandeventer's injuries were due to the defect in design and not the initial accident. Um, but, and, and, I think there was compromise that occurred yeah. in the jury room. I mean, the, to, to break it down, 84-16 is, is kind of a weird split, but I assume somebody in there was saying, I think it should be 50-50 because she started everything. And somebody right. else was saying, come on, I think it's all Hyundai. And they came down at 84-16. I, I, I did want to say I like the way you handled it in closing about talking about, you know, how, you know, this young girl, you know, has this on her conscience that, yeah you know, she caused him to be a, a, a paraplegic when really this just should have been a fender bender. Everybody kind of gets out, you know, takes, you know, exchanges insurance information, you know, and then walks away. That's what this should have been. And, and it would have been had, had not it been for the, uh, the seat back. But I, I like the way you handled that with her um, because you, I mean, she is at fault, but, um, but it, it should have been something very minor. And she was she was such a likable witness. I mean, she she literally walked up to that witness stand. She was shaking and almost crying. And and her dad the same thing. They they drew, they dragged him up on the witness stand. And yeah, in in you know by analogy in closing, I talked about if a if a bridge isn't properly designed and you've got a hundred cars on it, and then the hundred first car goes on it, even though it should be able to handle five hundred. And now that bridge collapses. It wasn't the 101st car that caused the collapse. It was the defective design. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, who knows? You make these arguments and you hope something resonates with the jury. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and I, I, I did want to give you a chance because it, they can be so important in these cases. And you've already talked about it a little bit. But were there any particular demonstratives that you... Uh, thought were, you know, good. I mean, I know you had a tear down of the seat there, um, you know, for the jury to see. And I think that's always important to have so you can really, you know, describe the product and show them. But we, any other any other demonstratives that you used at trial or or even the, I guess that you saw the other side use that you thought were particularly effective? Well, the you know, the other side that had the 3D anatomical uh, dish spine, um, you know, so we exchanged jury lists or exhibit lists a week before trial and whatever. They had 800 exhibits and yeah. one of them is model of spine. OK, no big deal. You know, model of spine. Well, they pull that thing out in opening statement. Their model of spine has this concrete pour down. It's unlike any <laughs> model of a spine I'd ever seen before. 
that, that was that was a persuasive uh, piece of evidence for them. I one of our strongest um, pieces of evidence came out of one of Viano's papers. He did a case study of four broken spines in rear offset accidents. So seven o'clock or five o'clock. And what he what his paper, you know, this is this is wonderful Viano. His paper was to show that even in his wonderful high retention seat, if you go outside the confines of the seat back, you can break your back. So all of these fractured spines were all in the thoracic, just like ours. All of them had broken ribs, just like ours. All of them had retrolithesis, where the upper disc was rearward of the one right. below it. And I gave that to Kirpa and I said, here's Viano's paper. And he's showing us broken spines um, from fulcrums going over the outside edge of the seat. And he said, absolutely, I agree. Those are all fulcrum fractures, and here's van deventers, and it looked identical to all of them. That's awesome. Yeah, it was it was persuasive. And then we had a we had a document. Um, I think it was like 180 different case names that Vianos testified in, and then we had a big red stamp that said "not defective, not defective." <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And I and I asked him. I said, you know, Viano, you're so good and well published that they don't bring you in for broken ankles or broken legs. You come in on cases where there's quadriplegics or paraplegics, really, really catastrophic injuries, don't you? Yeah, that's that's when they bring me in. And here's your list of 115 cases where every one of the cars were not defective. Yeah. That caused these horrific spinal cord injuries. Yeah, that's great. That's one of Steve's favorite things too, when you yeah. can use an expert stuff against Oh them. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, one of my favorite stories was a cross of Don Tandy in a four case where I just pulled out all of his expert reports and had a big box full of them saying, you said the same thing here. All these rolled over. All these were, you know, yeah. boards rolling over. Um, yeah, no, you know, I, he's such a, he's such a wonderful witness. I show him that and he says that, that, yeah, those are all accurate. Those are, you did a nice job putting that exhibit together. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, one other question before we get to the elephant in the room. Uh, but, uh, you, I I noticed that you didn't have your clients come in until towards the end of trial. So you, it sounds like you didn't have them there for most of the trial. Um, talk about that decision a little bit and then just how they did, uh, how they did on the stand and, and, um, how they resonated with the jury. Well, for, for Ed, it was it was more of a practical concern. I mean, if I had my gumption, I wouldn't have wanted the, him there anyway. But part of what happened at Van Deventer is about a year after his paralysis, he had ossification of his hips. So he lost the ability to sit up. So oh. Ed Van Deventer will spend the rest of his life prone on his back. I mean, he, <sighs> he can't come up much more than about 15 or 20 degrees. Oh, my gosh. So in order to transport him, the only way he can be transported is by a gurney in an ambulance. So, oh, wow. And, and so Sue, his wife, I wanted her there for the, but this just shows what kind of person she is. I said, Sue, I want you at trial so the jury can see you behind the rail. She said, no, I'm not going to leave Ed. I, if you want me to come, maybe I'll come for an hour a day it's because my daughter can come and be with Ed, but I am not going to leave Ed with the caretaker. So, wow. um, it, and, and one of their motions in limine was we don't want Ed Vandeventer being brought in when the jury's in the box. And I said, are you serious? What? Because it, 
his life is so hard. They, they have to be shielded from what his life is. But right. the, the judge agreed. He said, nope, we'll, we'll take the jury out on a break. We'll bring him in. Um, he'll be laid out in front of the jury. And, and I had to put a microphone because he's laying on his back. I had to put a microphone in front of him when he answered the questions. And, and that's how he came to the jury. Oh, wow. So how long did his testimony last? Just a few minutes? No, I would because there were a number of pictures that I wanted to put in evidence through him bef- that showed him before the accident. Because, you know, part of part of their disargument was this guy was so brittle. Right. He couldn't. He One of their experts said, I asked him in depth, well, would he be able to stand here and look up at the sky? No way. He wouldn't be able to do that with his dish. It's so severe. So I had pictures of him fishing. I had pictures of him doing work. I had pictures of him squeegeeing. I had pictures of him walking around Miller Park at a Brewers game. And so I wanted to, I, I bet you my direct of Ed was maybe 20 minutes or 25 minutes. Yeah. Okay. And, and and one of the powerful things he said, he said, he and, and it, you know, I get so emotionally invested in these cases that I'm probably more emotional than my clients. But he said, I, I dream of walking up. You know, yeah, it was it was very poignant. And he said, and it's always in technicolor that I'm walking in my dreams. And it, it's so nice to be able to ambulate. And then I wake up and I realize it was a dream. <sighs> yeah. Well, and one of the issues we didn't bring up is that is that the uh, that the um, headrest came off during the collision or at least. That was the plaintiff's version, and then the defense was claiming, no, somebody must have pulled it off. But that's a violation of the Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards for it, it to for it to come off. Okay, so, and yeah. and and so talk about that a little bit. I mean, was was that evidence of sort of the deformation and how much force there was to force these uh, these um, uh, two you know rods forward? Or yeah, um, well, sometimes these things happen, and you can't. It's hard to explain why it happened. So. Yeah. We know the head restraint had to be in there during the, the the greatest portion of the pulse because that's the only way these things bend towards the spine. So we know he had to load the, the head restraint cushion during the pulse where he's being forced back in the seat. Um, and it had one of those plastic tabs that require you to push it in in order to get the thing out. So, you know, part of what our, you know, expert came up with is during the amplification of the pulse, when he's being forced back and this thing is turning, it just turned enough that it popped out. Yeah. And their expert said, no, it didn't pop out. Somebody took it out. So, you know, they get, again, like you said, that that was another issue that polarized the jury. I said, so all three of the people in the car, including Ed, who said the head restraint was in before the accident and was out after they're all lying. But and of course, Fiano's so savvy. Well, I'm not saying they're lying. I'm just saying that they don't realize or remember that one of them took it out. What would be the purpose for taking it out? Of course, <clears throat> right? There yeah. would be there would be none. Right, right, right. Well, uh, I mean, it just a uh, fantastic work on the verdict. So let's talk about what happened afterwards. So you you get this uh, fantastic verdict, and then and you were getting daily. So to anybody who doesn't know, which which means the court reporter is basically uh, giving a daily transcript. It's not a it's not an official transcript. It's rough, but of everything that's being said, and it's it's great to use during trial. That way, you can say, "Remember, three days ago, somebody said this or whatever." Um, but then when the K uh, Hyundai wants to appeal it and the court reporter 
is basically just disappears. It sounds like. So what 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 happened with the with the court reporter and the in the transfer? Yeah. So uh, you know, every, every so I, I teach at the law school. So one of the things I want is my closing <laughs> argument. You know, because I want to talk to my class about you know different aspects of it. And she says, yeah, I'll get you the closing. I'll have it to you in a week. And she did that. Um, and then, you know, we get to be about a month or two months later. And, and Hyundai saying, we want to know when the record's going to be completed. And, and there's correspondence between all counsel and the court reporter. And she's saying, I'm working on it. I'll get to it. Then it gets to be another few months. And everyone's writing to the judge. And the judge says, okay, I've told her it's got to be done within a month. And about two weeks later, she leaves. She quits um, and goes MIA. Uh, no one knows where she is, including the court. Um, and, you know, so nobody knows what's going to happen with the record. Are we going to have to live with the rough or, or whatnot? No one knows where she is. We ultimately, the commissioner of courts for the state um, somehow is contacted by her mother, who says she's in the hospital. Um, with an air, she's not healthy, but I've got her steno notes and I've got her laptops and I'm going to turn them into the court. So that's what happens. Then the, the court hires replacement court reporters to go through and fix up the rough. Uh, you know, one of the big questions is, well, do we have audio for the whole trial? Because obviously that that's going to greatly assist in completing the record there. There was audio for the whole trial. Um, so they, they hire replacement court reporters who complete the record, send it out, um, defense gets it, and in furtherance of their desire to ask for a new trial, they say that this isn't accurate. Um, we've hired our own court reporter to listen to the audio files, and we find, you know, three, four, five hundred mistakes, um, inaccuracies a number of different areas where you just can't hear. And those are all very important to our appeal and our appellate rights are, are being inhibited. Um, so we're not asking for a new trial, but we're saying is we don't have a record. So let's start the process under Wisconsin, which is both sides have to get together and try to reconstruct the record. So we are filing our response to their brief on that issue tomorrow oh my gosh. where we have reconstructed we believe every single word of the trial oh my god wow so you know here we are almost 17 months later and um we're still trying to get the record completed so the thing can go up on appeal i'm, oh. I'm confident that we have now reconstructed every word of the trial yeah so it's the, let's it's get the, the substance best transcript that's ever been yeah, that's yeah. right i mean i mean i mean I, I, I almost have no words just because, you know, you work so hard during trial, you, you know, put so much time in, and then the thing that happens is, is that the, the, just the court reporter disappears. I mean, to the point where the judge even put out a warrant for her arrest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, this happened, Steve, this happened to us in right. a case that I'll, I'll just be vague about because we're in front of that judge and maybe in front of this court reporter again, but um, the, 
we, we were waiting for an appeal and, and months and months and months were going by and we were waiting for, we did not have dailies. So we were waiting for the transcripts from the court reporter. She was, she required like prepayment for like half of it. She was telling people she was going to get it to us. Then she stopped responding to emails entirely. And meanwhile, our client who's quadriplegic, it has no money. Um, the appellate process hasn't even started because we're still waiting for the transcripts. Mm. Um, and then the judge set um, a hearing for a contempt hearing. And uh, she finally showed up for that. And um, the co- judge sent a, set a date for that. We had to have the transcripts by. And I think we got them at like 11 o'clock that night, the day that they were due. Um, and, you know, it's just, I, I don't know what was going on in that court reporter's life or, or in her workload, but um, it is so frustrating when you think about how you, how hard you worked at trial. And especially when you have a client who really could use that money, be getting better medical yeah. care and they're completely stalled out. Um, yeah. It's it's an issue that uh, isn't talked about in law school. You don't think this is going to happen. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Expect the unexpected is yeah. what I always say. Wild. Yeah, that, it's just, a, it's a wild dynamic. And I hadn't really heard of it happening to, um, I mean, I was kind of shocked. I was sort of like, what do you do when the court reporter just ignores you? But um, maybe this is like dish. Maybe it's a lot more prevalent yeah. than we think. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, well, uh, Tim, so thank you so much for spending some time with us. Is there anything else about the uh, the Vanderventer versus Hyundai Motors Company case that uh, you'd like our listeners to know that we haven't had a chance to talk about already? No, it, it was, um, you guys know the amount of work that goes into something like this. So it's gratifying for our firm. I mean, we, we had... Um, you know, three attorneys who tried the case, another one who did a lot of the briefing. We had an IT guy there the whole time. We had two paralegals there the whole time and a team of people back at the office who were working continuously. So, yeah. you know, you know, and everybody who does this type of work knows it, it takes the village. Yes. I mean, these types of cases are battles that you need a team. And it, it's, you know, I always say the, the result doesn't dictate the effort. And uh, you, you have to sit back almost before the verdict and say, and I told my team, I couldn't be any prouder. I mean, we, we couldn't have done anything different. And, you know, I always say when the judge is reading that verdict and you're looking to see, is the tongue going to the roof of the mouth for him, <laughs> right, or right, going right, down yeah. below to say, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like the, the, that split second where you're thinking you can't, you can't judge the effort by ultimately that verdict. Mm-hmm. So you have to enjoy the preparation and the job you did. And, and, you know, you're gratified when it works out the the way it does, because, you know, with this type of injury, you've got a client that is so deserving that did nothing wrong. Yeah. I mean, so often in products cases, you've got the chicken and the egg, you've got contrib, but you've got this defect and you say, well, if it wouldn't have been defective, even with the contrib, he's not injured. This, this guy was doing everything right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great job. It's funny you talk about, you know, uh, what you're doing when you get in the verdict. Cause I was thinking, I have this habit of, I have one piece of paper <laughs> that I have a pen and I keep my head down. I don't look at the judge. I don't look at the jury. Cause I don't want to, 
you know, look at somebody and they give me a side eye and then I'm like, oh, you know, we just <laughs> lost or, you know, like, you know, or they give me, you know, they're smiling at me and I think and I'm thinking we just won. And then they, you know, so. Uh, no, uh, I don't look either. I look at the ground and I have that right. nauseous feeling, that <laughs> nauseous excitement feeling. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but usually I'm not. I wasn't the lead. I'm, I'm never the lead tri trial counsel. So well, I have the, the luxury of being able to kind of just tuck away a little bit <laughs> well but but all of these cases i mean they really do take a village i mean when whenever we have a case that goes to trial it's all hands on deck and um you know it's it, we get everybody involved and uh you know so but um but yeah well really great job let me remind everybody we've been talking about the vanderventer versus hyundai motors company case uh the verdict the total verdict was 38 million 164 thousand 263 dollars and 34 cents we have been talking to tim trocek at uh habish habish rotier or nice no, screwed that up i, I went the whole time <laughs> habish habish and rotier uh and uh out of milwaukee wisconsin and you can look up Tim at habish.com. That's H A B U S H.com. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me out, and you do a great job on the podcast. So, thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.